You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Conductors Sir Andrew Davis, tenor Matthew Polansani, and stage director Chaz Rader-Sheber are backstage at Lyric. You know, there are lots of sillinesses and, and very funny things and, uh, you know, quite broadly slapstick comedic things in a way. And then all of a sudden you will get an aria or an ensemble that, that suddenly goes very deep into, uh, into the emotional and uh, dramatic situation in a way that only Mozart could do. In a flash, you know, you turn from, from something very frivolous to something that's very profound and moving. And I think that is um, one of the great strengths of this piece. It's hard to find people with these kind of vocal chops, but who can also play a character. You know, anybody could be boring and sing something perfectly nice, but, you, you know, you just, it flies right by. You think, oh, that's nice, you know, but that whatever was just happening dramatically flew right by because... There wasn't anything there, you know? It is a comedy that then, over time, reveals itself to be a deeper and deeper piece than one might expect. And if you can find a way to make a whole production feel like just one evening, but take that journey and help an audience take that journey as well, then I think you can pull it off. But it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. I don't know, you know, you just have to believe that each of these people are really singing, they really believe what they're saying, and that's what makes it funny. You know, if they're, like I said, slapstick is slapstick, and that is funny to watch, but believing in the characters will lead to a greater, um, a greater reward in the end. Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. We'll be playing an audio transcript of the Lyric Opera Discovery Series session for Mozart's The Abduction from the Seraglio. For those of you who may not be aware of the Discovery Series, it's panel discussions featuring singers, conductors, directors, and opera experts. We do one session per opera, and they usually take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. The Discovery Series is open to the public, and it's a great way to get up close and personal with our artists. You can check out our website at www.lyricopera.org for dates, tickets, and complete Discovery Series information. We include all of the Discovery Series sessions as part of the Backstage at Lyric podcast. And now, on to the Discovery Series panel featuring Sir Andrew Davis, Matthew Polanzani, and Chaz Rader-Sheber. I'm your host for this session, and I hope you enjoy it. Good evening, everyone. I'm Roger Pines, dramaturg at Lyric Opera of Chicago, and I am delighted to welcome you to the final Discovery Series session of the season devoted to Mozart's The Abduction from the Seraglio. Our new production of that opera opens on Monday, March 2nd. Tonight, we're very fortunate to have our leading man, conductor, and director with us to talk about an opera not seen on our stage uh, for nearly 25 years I will do the introductions in alphabetical order. For our esteemed music director, Sir Andrew Davis, abduction can now be added to a record uh, in Mozart at Lyric that already includes La Clemenza di Tito, Così Fan Tutte, The Marriage of Figaro, and The Magic Flute. 
He's conducted more than 30 operas with the company, most recently Tristano Desolde, Madama Butterfly, and Lulu. Sir Andrew is laureate conductor of the BBC Symphony Orchestra, former music director of both the Toronto Symphony and Glyndebourne Festival Opera, and a much-admired figure on the podiums of innumerable major orchestras and opera companies worldwide. The rest of his 2009-10 season finds him returning to La Scala for Britain's Midsummer Night's Dream, and appearing with the Budapest Festival Orchestra at the Frankfurt Radio Symphony on tour with London's Royal Philharmonic and with the Munich Philharmonic and the Melbourne Symphony. Many of us here tonight have been excited to follow the career of Matthew Polanzani since his tenure with the Ryan Opera Center. He returned to us two seasons ago as Romeo in Romeo et Juliette, having established himself internationally as one of today's most outstanding lyric tenors. He was also with us last season as Alfredo in La Traviata and is now returning to star as Belmonte in Abduction. That's a role that he sang last season with great success at the Metropolitan Opera. He began his current season in Mozart, singing the Magic Flute at Los Angeles Opera. This season includes his return to the Met in Don Giovanni, also appearances at the Frankfurt Opera and the Vienna Staatsoper, also the Verbier Festival, and performances with major orchestras, including the St. Louis Symphony, the Boston Symphony, and the Ensemble Orchestral de Paris. Now, one of the most captivating productions of recent seasons at Lyric was the 50th anniversary season's production of actually a Lyric opera premiere of Janáček's The Cunning Little Vixen, directed by Chaz Rader Schieber in his company debut. Among other highlights of the current season for Chaz are two other Mozart operas, Il Re Pastore for Opera Theatre St. Louis and Don Giovanni at Santa Fe Opera, as well as Handel's Tamerlano at Los Angeles Opera. His work has been seen throughout North America, in Houston, Santa Fe, Montreal, Washington, at Glimmerglass Opera, Opera Company Philadelphia, and many more. Among the more rarely heard works that he has staged are Rossini's La Donna del Lago at the New York City Opera, Soler's Una Cosa Rara in St. Louis, and Charpentier's David et Jonatas in Sydney. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series Sir Andrew Davis, Matthew Polanzani, and Chaz Rader Schieber. Uh, Before we start, since we haven't done abduction in quite a long time at Lyric, the story, very briefly, Constanza and Belmonte are betrothed. While making a sea voyage, Constanza, her maid Blonda, and Belmonte's servant Pedrillo are captured by pirates and sold to Turkey's Pasha Zelim. Belmonte comes to the palace to rescue Constanza, who is now part of the Pasha's harem, and must repeatedly force herself to resist his declarations of love. Pedrillo helps his master to get past Osmin, the Pasha's bumbling overseer, who guards the gates of the palace. Pedrillo arranges a late-night reunion between Belmonte and Constanza, and plans are made for the noble couple and their servants to escape. Pedrillo manages to get Osmin drunk, and the overseer falls asleep. He awakens, however, just as the escape is proceeding. Osmin, who has had designs on Blonde, is especially gleeful once he has captured her and the other three Europeans. He alerts the Pasha, who, upon questioning Belmonte, discovers that the young nobleman is the son of his own worst enemy. He initially plans to have Belmonte and Constanza executed, but then relents, allowing the two couples to return home. Is that a jazz? Was that okay? Well, you just make it sound so silly. <laughs> <laughs> No, you was, will prove otherwise. No, that was amazingly concise. Thank you. Bravo. So, Andrew, does 
this piece stand out as any sort of milestone or turning point in Mozart's development as an opera composer? Uh, well, certainly. I mean, was now you'll you'll tell me. I have to check my facts with Roger. It came after Idomeneo, did it not? Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, I think you can say without much fear of contradiction that Idomeneo is m- the first of Mozart's really, really great pieces, and, and it's a piece that he loved especially himself. He was particularly proud of it and fond of it. Uh, but uh, in Führung, abduction followed almost immediately, I think. Um, and uh, they couldn't be more different in a way because, you know, um, uh, Domineo is a kind of logical um, progression from Gluck's work um, and it's, you know, a, a tragic piece based on, on the story from the Trojan War. And then we have this very silly <laughs> um, story about, you know, uh, Europeans trying to escape from Turks. Um, and there's a lot of Turkish music, you know. It's the only... The, 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 um, one of the percussion players said to me, said, oh, I'm looking forward to finally playing a Mozart opera because, you know, it's bass drum and cymbals and triangle, which is, you know, you don't hear in any of the other Mozart uh, operas, as far as I know. Is there any? No, no, I don't think there's any. So, uh, and, and of course, it also is a singspiel, uh, like the magic flute, with dialogue, and it's in German. So, and, and it is extraordinary, actually, how often you see, at least I do, see and hear the magic flute over the horizon somewhere. Um, there you find that. It's really extraordinary. So it, it, it in a way, was a, a sort of tryout for the magic flute. Um, and also, like the magic flute, in a way, uh, it's, you know, there are lots of sillinesses and, and very funny things and, uh, you know, quite broadly slapstick comedic things, in a way. And then all of a sudden you will get an aria or an ensemble that, that suddenly goes very deep into, uh, into the emotional and um, dramatic situation in a way that only Mozart could do. In a flash, you know, you turn from, from something very frivolous to something that's very profound and moving. And I think that is um, one of the great strengths of this piece, that what is ostensibly a silly little tale um, becomes transformed by this absolutely magical music and, and, and Mozart's unerring ability to find the core of each personality that he's, he's writing for. We haven't done abduction since the fall of 1984 and up to now um, that has been its only appearance on our stage in our history. So what, do you, what accounts can you speak to that? What accounts for it being so seldom well, it's, on our stage. it's a tricky piece to, 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 to stage, isn't it? I mean, perhaps you'd like to speak to that. I, I mean, I can't speak to why it hasn't been performed more often here, but I can tell you that it's, it's tricky to stage in a good tricky way. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's, a, yeah. It's, a, it's a good challenge. And I think it, depending on how one looks at it, I agree with you that, that this is maybe why this collaboration has been so good, but that it, it, it is a a comedy that then, over time, reveals itself to be a deeper and deeper piece than one might expect. And 
if you can find a way to make a whole production feel like just one evening, but, but take that journey and help an audience take that journey as well, then I think you can pull it off. It's some, but that's not, a, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. No, there's other reasons, though, because it's tough to cast, I think. Yes. You, 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 I mean, at least Belmonte is, is written, really, for, for most Mozart, most Mozart tenors would say they could sing this piece. But Constanza is really a tour de force especially those two arias in the second act. I mean, you, you have to have somebody who is terrifically secure and a good actress, I mean, but like really completely sure of what they're doing. And Osmin, I mean, you, you know, there are written low Ds. I mean, you just don't, you can't find, you can't find a bass who can sing this part all over the place. And even for my money anyway, more to the point, this piece, the engine of this piece is really Pedrillo and Osmin. You know that for me, they they really make they make things they make things go forward. And Pedrillo, it, any any Mozart tenor would tell you that Pedrillo was a difficult thing to sing. But if you if so, you need a good singer who, to sing Pedrillo. But you also need somebody who's got a big personality who can who can lift up. You know, because you have Belmonte and Constanza who are so, you know. Everything, noble. Yeah, I mean, noble, yeah, but so I mean... damn noble. Yeah. Yeah, that's, well, more that they're not really involved in the comedy of the piece. And when they're on the no, stage, no. it's it's about their love and it's about their trying to get to, to be together again. Pedrillo is the driving force. So you need somebody who's already, A, a great singer because his music is difficult, and B, somebody with a big personality who can help push things along. So, I mean, I don't know. For my money, I think it's really tough to cast. Um, now, Matthew, you had done, before you got to Belmonte, you'd done Ottavio and Don Giovanni, you'd done Ferrando Così and Tamino. No, I hadn't, no? Sung, I hadn't sung Ferrando yet. That's okay. okay. Yeah. Um, where does this role, can you, I know that, that, that each role is one, one feels so close to, but can you speak to where Belmonte fits in your affections, for lack of a better word, in relation to the others? Well, I mean... Uh, Frankly, he's not my favorite guy because, well, you know, I mean, I love his music. I'm crazy about his music, actually. Musically, he's, he's, in my, he's probably in my top two. So that makes it interesting. But in terms of character development, he doesn't really get to do a lot on the stage. You know, Pedrillo says, I'm going to take care of that. You wait here. He says it to me like two or three times, you know. So, I mean, character-wise, he's a hard guy to play because he's, he's really only about the one thing. Everything that he went through to get to, uh, to, get to find Constanza, perhaps that was a bigger trial for him. You know, and of course, at the end, when he's facing his death, I mean, that's difficult. And he believes that he's responsible for Constanza's death, even worse, you know. So, I mean, in, you know, I, I think uh, I find Ferrando more interesting to play or Tamino more interesting to play. Even Ottavio, if they're, if, if, if they're giving him a chance to be a man. You know, then. Uh, but on the, on the other hand, uh, with the musically, I, you could you couldn't ask for more. No. Um, Chaz, did you did, did abduction come into your life later than the other pieces? When did you first experience it, just purely as an audience member? Uh, wow. When did I first? Yeah, I think I, I, I saw it in the in the. As a teenager, I saw it and was immediately intrigued by it. So uh, I was going to ask you, what was your first response to it? Uh, I, I thought it was fantastic and, and, and engaging. And, and, uh, but I, I was lucky and I saw a production that I think offered both sides of the piece. So uh, you, it's amazing how a first time seeing something can have an impact on how you 
think about that piece forever and ever and ever. So I was lucky in that way, and it became intriguing to sort of have an opportunity to, to make a production. Mm-hmm. When you think of the universal popularity of the Mozart da Ponte operas, as well as Magic Flute, and then you look at abduction, it exists on a different plane, just in terms of people's affection for it. So do you think it deserves to be, I mean, it is one of the you know, big five, shall we say, but we don't have that same feeling for it necessarily that we have for, Fi- for Figaro or for Don Giovanni. It, how do you view it in those terms? Is it just so, so completely, uh, any of you? <laughs> well, it, 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 clearly it's not, it, it hasn't, it hasn't achieved that. First of all, you know, the, the three de Ponte operas have such great structure because of the, because of the libretto and the way that the, the librettist and the composer work together. Uh, Magic Flute is, uh, shouldn't work. <laughs> it, should, it shouldn't work because it's nuts. You it's know. the greatest flawed masterpiece. It, yes, but, uh, and I remember actually when I was young, young and foolish and... and uh, well, now I'm old and foolish, but uh, <laughs> in those days, you know, I, I remember at one point I was doing the flute and thinking, now, I have to decide whether the really, the most important part of this work is the, you know, the serious Masonic visionary side, or is it the comedy that's, uh, you know, what, where should I put the emphasis, which is complete rubbish, because what you do when you do the magic flute is you do each number <coughs> the best way you can bring out the intrinsic what it isness of that number, and then go on to the next one. And if one number is a comic number and the next one is a Masonic chorus, that, that's not your problem. <laughs> and, and actually, if you do it that way, it, it, it takes care of itself, really. I mean, it is a great, great masterpiece, and, and, and it, it's, so, it's, it's, it's so weird that... Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it shouldn't work, but it does, because it's, it, it's quite astonishing. Um, um, so I think, you know, the whole... I'd be interested to know at what point Mozart decided that this just wasn't going to be a frivolous evening, but... And I think probably when he started writing these great arias for, for Belmonte and, um, and Costanza... You know, his whole creative juices suddenly took... I, I've always thought that, that, you know, he, he was writing this music and, and, and it, it, it took him over, and that took the piece onto a different plane. Now, you know, that's a theory about how, how it happened. Did he say, this is going to be a frivolous evening, but there's going to be some incredibly profound music in it? I don't know, you know. But, with... you, you know, I, it's possible that's how it started, but it's, you know, in a strange way, it's so well-structured, the journey from, from frivolousness to seriousness, it almost makes me think that whether it's that thing we call that savantism of, of Mozart, that he kind of knew how to put it together in yeah. such a way that it does have a real sort of a, a, a kind of a thoughtful journey. It doesn't seem as, as spectacularly haphazard and strangely successful uh, as, as Magic Flute is. It, it right. feels a little more careful, which I... Maybe well, I made, yeah. once again, it's just a theory, but I, yeah. <laughs> um, I, would, I would like to talk about that just a little bit too, actually. I just wanted to say, you know, you're asking about why it hasn't achieved the same success as the Da Ponte operas. And for my money, in those Da Ponte operas, it is nearly impossible not to be able to, and we identify much more with the people in, 
in say Figaro or 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 Giovanni or you know I mean we we identify with those people very easily. It's very easy to put yourself in the shoes of Anna, you know, or the Contessa and feel how wronged they both are. It's easy to understand and feel. It's not it doesn't take a, a big leap of imagination to think to yourself Man, you know, if my wife did that to me, if my husband did that to me, you know, it's easy to feel those things. But I don't know. My wife has never been kidnapped by pirates. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, that's not not that not that we need that. You know, I'm, I'm making a joke, I'm making sort of light of it. But it's a little harder to find ourselves feeling for what they're going through because it's it's kind of a it's a fantasy, it's a fiction, and it's perhaps people in those days could relate a little easier. But today, I mean. You know, it's a little harder for us to identify with Constance, identify with Belmonte, and how hard he had to work to get there. But I mean, you see Anna being wronged in the beginning, and your heart hurts for her. You see the Count and what a cad he is, and how 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 sad you are for for the Contessa. You know, even though she has her little dalliance too. You know, I mean, it's we identify with these people really easily. And for my money, the, you couldn't, you could, the you know, the the, the vocal writing is. On the same level, you know, they're they're all masterpieces. But we identify with the people in the in the Da Ponte operas much more e- readily and easily. And frankly, if you're going to have a successful night at the opera, yeah. we, the audience has got to be able to identify with the people. They have to be willing to when they walk in, not just to think that they're going to listen to some music and hopefully not fall asleep. But I mean, you know, to listen to this music and see this character and think for a second to themselves, wow, I would hate that if that was me, you know, and really identify with the people. And, pe- you know, the audience has to be open to that idea. So I think it's true that I think that the Da Ponte captures a kind of dom- domestic emotional life mm. in those three pieces that you, we understand that, that there is a difficulty in nobility when it is in a bubble a little bit, which is a mm. challenge for... Anybody who has to sing Belmonte, there's mm. a little bit of a protective, noble bubble around him. It's hard for us to get there. Which, and, and in many ways, the servant characters live a more domestic, emotional life. So we mm. enter the piece mm. through the comedy. But I think if one is willing to go along for the ride, one is rewarded by the emotional life of the noble oh, yeah. characters. Mm. It just doesn't happen right away. Mm. It, it takes the whole opera. Right. It's, it's easy to sort of fall in love with the servants first, but you come around and find a grace in the noble characters. Absolutely. So I, you, eventually you get all of it, but it's not as, not as um, efficiently done, maybe, as Da Ponte. I wanted to speak about the vocal side for a moment with Matthew. Um, you know, Mozart was writing your role for a tenor named Adam Berger, and he, like you, received constant praise for the sensitivity of his phrasing, his musicianship. So... In what Belmonte gets to sing, is there indeed this level of musicality and sophistication that's required that somehow goes beyond what is asked of you in some of the other Mozart parts that you sing? Well, it's interesting because certainly the aria at the top of the third act, Ich um, Ganz, is really virtuosic in its writing, which is not to say that none of his other arias are not difficult but more to say that what Mozart asked of the tenor in, the, in that piece is more than he asks in... I mean, now I've only sung... I've sung only the operas we've spoken about tonight, Cosi and Giovanni and Magic Flute and this. I never sang any of the other ones um, so far, so I can't say, like, 
I know Fuor del Mar from Idomeneo is absolutely virtuosic in that the, point, but not having also, sung it, you yeah. know, I, I can't really relate to it. There's so, the entrance aria of Mitridate, I don't know if you've heard. No, I don't oh, know that either. That's superhuman, the yeah. same kind. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, he asks a lot, but uh, um, frankly, the reward of singing something like that and being, I don't know, like, you know, there's a certain... Now, here's what I can relate it to. You know, I never really got Sudoku. You know, <laughs> I, I can finish the I can finish the game. I can finish it, but I get no satisfaction from it. You know, I'm I finish it. I'm like, all right, what did I just do? You know, my mom, on the other hand, is crazy about it. But for me, like finishing the the aria at the top of the third act is really satisfying, not just emotionally but vocally, because I know it's got challenges in it that are different from other things that I sing. And so when I've done it and I feel like I've done it well, it has a major satisfaction. So. Um, all, all I can say to you all is wait until you hear yeah. it. It's magnificent. <laughs> Truly. And also there's that, there's that other little element that Matthew will not tell you, which is to make it look and sound easy is its own special added tour de force. So. Mm. Um, Andrew, orchestrally speaking, what separates the challenge of conducting this piece from, well, Magic Flute for one, but also the De Ponte operas? I mean, does it have its own challenges that really sort of stand by themselves? No. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> They're all the same. I mean, you know, this one has percussion in it. But, but, but no, basically, it, they're all the same issues. Phrasing, balancing within the orchestra uh, and between the orchestra and the stage. And there are one or two problems of, of, um, of balance, but not, not, not really serious. Well, um, I was... John Pritchard, who I've quoted before in this venue, who was a music director at Glyndebourne and a marvellous Mozartian, uh, I, I heard him rehearsing once just with the orchestra and he was talking. There was doing some passage and one part of the orchestra needed to be heard more clearly than... And, and um, he just stopped and he said, Ladies and gentlemen, um, the thing is, you just have to be rather smart when you're playing this music and realise when what somebody else is playing is more important than what you're playing, and then it's just a matter of good manners. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's very well put, and I mean, it's that kind of sensitivity. But um, there is always a lot of potential for colour in Mozart scores, you know, just orchestral timbre, and, um, uh, and I must say the orchestra playing it very well um, and very stylishly, very quickly, because we... I haven't had a huge amount of rehearsal for this compared with some of the other things we did. Well, <laughs> some of the other things we've done this season have been a great deal longer um, and, and more complicated in a way. But, um, uh, no, I think Mozart's style is, is something that um, uh, orchestras uh, have, to, have to acquire, but I think once you, once you have it, then then the, the problems of this piece are, uh, are the same as the problems elsewhere. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of Mozart hallmarks. There's a wonderful sort of wind band music uh, in, in, in some of the pieces, particularly actually for Belmonte. Um, and, again, he uses different sections of the orchestra. The, the, this one, you know, there's some pieces that are just have clarinets and bassoons and horns and then 
when the oboes don't play anything. So he uses a different section of the orchestra to, to make the different color of, of, of the um, different characters of, of, of the music. Um, but uh, actually Traurigkeit, the, 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 the second of the soprano arias, again uses the woodwind in a very imaginative and, and moving way. Uh, it's, interestingly enough, it's you know, the great... Um, um, expressive, sorrowful uh, aria for Constanza, and it's in the same key as Achifuls uh, for Pamina in the Magic Flutes, G minor, which was is a is a very always a very um, expressive, melancholic, painful sometimes, but intimate key. Whereas D minor for Mozart is is more tragic and it's more sort of public. It's interesting how very much with, with Mozart, you, you, you know, the, the certain keys are associated with, uh, with, with certain emotional states. And you can see that thread running throughout his career. That's why you should all continue to come to the Discovery Series so you can learn about that kind of thing. Thank you, Andrew. Let's speak a bit about the characterizations that Mozart is offering us in this piece. Well, Chaz, why, first of all, do you think that Mozart made this decision to make Pasha Zalim a speaking role, and how does that change things? Uh, wow, that's a good question. Um, I, I can't speak for him, but I can speak to the idea behind that, finding that as an existing choice. You open the score and it's not like you cut his music. It's just not there to start with. Um, I, I think it has to do with the, the, the big picture issue in this story about people trying to communicate with one another. And um, there's a kind of cross-cultural exoticism that is heightened by the ability for, of some characters to sing and this one gentleman not to. The, uh, his, his desire for Constanza, but his inability to somehow connect with her um, on a more intimate level, um, whereas she's connected to Belmonte in a very intimate way, um, is, is told to us through Belmonte's ability to sing and to sing back to her, and in fact that third act duet, which is sort of remarkable, and the Pasha who can't make that leap from speaking to singing. There's a beautiful, bittersweet quality to... to his ability to speak, but to carry his emotion no further. He is sort of stifled in that way, intentionally, I think. And um, it, it has a lot to do with how you end up thinking about casting the, the actor who plays that role. There are so many ways you can go. I mean, we've often seen it done by a much older sort of... Uh, I don't know how to describe it without insult. Uh, sometimes not so viable uh, option for the soprano, um, which I find all, often sort of puts a damper on storytelling because if you meet him and you immediately think, if I don't see anything in this guy, what could she possibly see in him? Um, that the, the story is sort of over before it starts and poor Belmonte doesn't have a, a task for three acts. So we've made a choice about the casting in, in this production, to make him an option for her. The story tells us that she doesn't take that option, and so we have to tell that story, but it, at least there's something interesting going on 
until finally, at the only at the very end of two acts worth, do Belmonte and Costanza find one another. So for two acts, she's had a little dilemma on her hands. And, um, and it, I think it makes it, the, the story much more interesting. And then the payoff uh, is, is that much more interesting at the end. So do you play it that he really does love Constanza? You know, I, lo- oh, sure. love is a grand word, but yes, I think... Um, <clears throat> Loves her, desires her, whatever. I think he, yes, I think that the, his feelings for her are genuine. How was that for sidestepping? And yes, how, <laughs> yes and I think they are. Do, do you play it that she is quite conflicted in her response to him? I don't have she... to play it, thank goodness. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's an evening you don't want to see in the theater. Uh, but I think that, that, that Aaron has, uh, you know, it's something that sort of sits quietly underneath um, the, the characterization that clearly something is there that makes her not just slap the man and run away. Um, you know, there's a reason that these people have these conversations, difficult though they might be, and that she sings uh, these arias to him um, to try to convince him of something uh, that if any of us tried to convince somebody of the same thing, it would take about 11 seconds and then we'd leave. Mm. You say, the, uh, no means no, and then you walk away. <laughs> but, but she doesn't um, do that at all. Uh, so there has to be something underneath that makes it about a, a choice, a difficult choice. Um, clearly she makes the right one. Uh, but it's not so easy. It's not so easy to do. There is a sort of uh, evident sense of conflict within the Pasha, of course, I think. I mean, this is a man who, on the one hand, is an absolute ruler. Yes. Uh, and he's used to being an absolute ruler. But, on the other hand, he has, at some point, been forced to leave his own fatherland. He tells us that later because of, because of um, Belmonte's father. And he's also a man, a man who is, I imagine, uh, uh, truly in love with a woman maybe for the first time since this love that he lost again That's due right. to the... It's all, we hear this, we learn this very right at the end of the piece and very briefly. It's so uh, so uh, that is perhaps another reason why he is sort of curiously inarticulate because there's so much... He's conflicted in so much of these different attributes of his personality. Right. And, and remember, the, the audience at the time, they're feeling about Turkey and Turkish culture is going to be quite different from what we all understand today. So the, the, the idea that, yes, he's an absolute ruler, thought of by some people as a barbarian, but in fact he's quite an... They, they, they let us know early on, he's sort of an enlightened version yeah. of that barbarian. He is, in fact, not... In Pedrillo tells Belmonte, although Constanza is with him, he's not the kind of guy who would force himself on her. Although, just between the two of them, he does threaten. But she knows... As, as much as we as an audience know, he won't follow through with it. And that's his, that sort of sadness for him. Is he, he can't force himself on her. He wants this to be her choice, and that's simply not going to happen. Uh, at this point, uh, do, does everybody have cards? I don't see anybody. Okay, at this point, can you pass them to your right, and um, someone will come down the aisle and pick them up and while we continue the, our discussion? but just pass them to your right, and they will be picked up. Um, so, Matthew, you were talking before a little bit about the characterization of Belmonte. I mean, is there any, there's, there isn't any real complexity in him? Does he grow at all in the course of the three acts? 
<laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he does. He does grow because anytime you're being deprived of the thing that you love and the thing that you need, you're growing because you're learning how to deal with that absence. So, yes, he grows, but he's still dependent on Pedrillo to get things done. He's dependent on Pedrillo to make sure he can see Constanza. He's dependent on her, on him to deliver him, uh, deliver her to him. Yeah, you know what? It's his ship that's in the harbor that's waiting to take them away, and he has come to take her back. But he gets into the hall because of Pedrillo, he, or into the Pasha's house. He and Pedrillo drugs us means so that it'd be possible for us to escape, though it doesn't ultimately work. And then on top of it, by admitting that his father is the Commandant von Oran. He, 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 he condemns both Constanza and himself to death. And in that moment, he, he, has to, he, he becomes aware of a greater love, a more uh, heroic love. And, and, that, and that's the love that Constanza displays for him when she says, well, what is death anyway? It's just a crossing over to peace. And as long as I'm by your side, everything's going to be okay. You know, and, and I mean, he's blown away by this. You know, so he does grow. But, you know, uh, uh, most of his growth comes, unfortunately, in the third act, you know. So, um, uh, you know, it's kind of hard. But some, not every character is chock full of everything that you want it to be, you know. So it's, it's, you, we have to figure out a way to, you know, to make, to make it interesting. And that means that most of Belmonte's statements from the stage are going to come musically and maybe not so much dramatically. I mean, but it's just one of those difficult characters to play, and you just have to continue to try and find things to say within the music so that, uh, so that everything doesn't grind to a halt. You know, as soon as he steps on the stage, oh, here comes another aria, all right. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, so. um, we should talk about the, the two ladies who are among the principals in this opera. Andrew Mozart, I think... Uh, he seemed to love strong women in opera, and these two are quite strong in their very different ways. I mean, they're, they are both brave, and they're both <coughs> feisty, and, but they're di- so different as human beings. Um, he was writing, interestingly, he was writing for two high sopranos, and yet this music for Blonda and Constanza could hardly be more contrasting. So can you describe briefly how it totally differentiates between these two and, and characterizes them? Well, uh, the kind of... The kind of virtuosity that uh, the, the two characters uh, need is of a very different kind. Blanchon uh, obviously is designed for a much lighter voice, and, and, and the way she sort of uh, peels off her roulades uh, uh, are with a, a kind of um, insouciance, I suppose you might say. <laughs> What am I doing this afternoon? <laughs> um, yeah, but she, she's, she's a simple character, very strong, won't put up with uh, anything from, particularly from men, and, and her scenes with Osmin are hilariously funny, I have to say. They're, they're brilliant. Um, uh, Constanza is clearly a noble woman. Uh, it requires a voice with much more weight. And although it re- requires... The, uh, a similar kind of agility. The way you deliver these uh, runs uh, and, and the decorative coloratura is, is much more expressive, even so. And, and it's interesting that the, um, Martha alla Arten, which is the, the third aria, has obbligato parts for uh, violin, cello, flute, and oboe, 
uh, and they form a, a sort of five-part dialogue in places with the solo soprano. Um, and so the, it gives the music much greater complex, complexity and a sense of virtuosity that, that is kind of more strenuous, in a way, than, than what's required of, of, of Blonda. Uh, and they are three very great arias, I have to say, and three of the most difficult soprano arias, all of them. Actually, I have to tell you that... Um, in 1988, I was conducting at Glyndebourne. Uh, I was actually conducting Katya Kabanova by Janacek. And um, the abduction was being performed. Um, and I remember sitting outside, lovely English, warm summer day, he, uh, sitting in the, uh, the sort of staff canteen, drinking some coffee or squash or something, and over the loudspeaker came the sounds of, of abduction being rehearsed, and this divine performance of secondary Traurigkeit came wafting over, and I was absolutely moved by this. You want to know who it was? Gianna Rolando. Oh. <laughs> and it's after that I took her out on a date. <laughs> and the rest is history. history. So. <laughs> now, going from the stratosphere to the basement, we need to talk about Osmin. So, the, the basso profondo in this cast. So, Andrew, how does vocal virtuosity help to bring that character to life? Well, uh, why don't you let Matthew answer that I, <laughs> no I mean yeah I, uh, you know I, um, well he, it's just an incredibly I mean the way the range of, of Osmin is used by Mozart is, is very comic you know mm. uh, um, and it goes it's, it's two octaves and a third he goes from D to F um, and the, as, as Matthew so rightly said very few people can do this um, and, and have that same quality of um, inventiveness and um, we're very lucky to have Andrea who is, is quite a favorite of course by by now with sh uh, Chicago audiences and he's done an extraordinary variety of repertoire with us mm. um, I mean he was in Bohem last season sang a beautiful overcoat aria he was in the ring side uh, you know he, he's he was um, um, Mm -hmm. Commendatore in Giovanni. Commendatore. He was Bartolo in Figaro. Oh um, Sparafucile. Sparafucile. Not to mention uh, Fafner. No. Yes. Fasold. Fasold. Thank you. <laughs> Fasold in the in in uh, in the um, uh, Rheingold. So uh, he's and and he is splendidly exotic. Mm. Um, Partly because he doesn't sound like a German when he's speaking German. I was going to say, but, <laughs> but but he delivers the dialogue with great relish. I have to say, and a, a lot of wit. And uh, so, you know, I think the it, it's the agility of of having a bass who uh, at the same time can actually sing these quite high notes. And be very agile is what's so special about this role, I think. Right. Well, not to mention the fact that he's hilarious. 
I mean, yeah. you know, it's one thing to be able to deliver an aria or whatever, but to be able to sing it in such a convincing way, as well as playing a character so fun, in such a fun manner. I mean, he's already a really great guy, very lighthearted, you know, um, man. And this, you know, you know, Osmin is not that way, but if he's going to be funny, you need to be able to tap into that, you know, that sort of, that resource and uh, and this is why I mean it, yeah it's just like I said before you know it's hard to find people with these kind of vocal chops but who can also play a character you know anybody can be boring and sing something perfectly nice but you you know you just it, it flies right by you think oh that's nice you know but that whatever was just happening dramatically flew right by because there wasn't anything there you know he's a he's a villain that he's a villain you want to love there you go yeah. exactly what I was Andrea. Thinking. About three seconds after the curtain goes out, he has you right here. And, and that's, you know, that's a rarity, that particular magic. Um, we need to talk in some detail, I think, about this new production. Um, Chaz, what are the pitfalls of staging this work that you wanted to avoid when you decided to do it? Because you've probably seen your share of the productions and... And as you said, it's, you know, it's a tricky piece. So what, I suppose we should say first, what kind of abduction did you not want to do? I did not want to do an abduction set on Mars, for instance. That would, um, it's probably been done, though. I'm yeah, I'm going to guess. It has. A, um, yeah. why, why, why repeat a perfect thing? Uh, I, I would... Uh, what, what one wants to do, I, I don't know about what I didn't want. It's easier to think of what you do want out of a piece. You want it to, as I said earlier, I think you want it to be able to take you on a journey that has great sort of charm and, and silliness in it. Silliness is tremendously underrated, I think, in the opera house. So you want to have that silliness, but you also want to, in a careful way, guide the ship uh, to a place that has weight, you know, not excess weight, but the weight that it deserves, that there is, a, there is a profound beauty in the message. And I think that if you can sort of look at the piece as a whole and say, look, here's where it starts and here's where it ends, can you make a, a production that can encompass all of that and make it feel like one piece? You know, from, I, I, adding on to that, you know, what makes a comedy work is if it's delivered in seriousness. You know, you can't, anybody can, you know, trip and fall over, you know, and think, oh, he's like, he just fell over, you know, but, you know, I mean, you know, but what makes it work is if it's done in, if it, if the people look like they're doing it in earnest. And it's funny because they don't even, they don't know they're being funny. It's funny because the situation they're in is funny, you know, and we, again, we'll talk about relating to characters, you know, I had a big conversation with Renee Fleming about La Traviata last year, and, uh, because I, the last time, the time I'd done it before that, the woman who I'd done it with, who was an A++++ singer, had zero dramatic interest in the piece. And really, after it was done, I just, I said to my manager, I'll do the, I'll do the ones that I have left, but I'll never do it again. Because I, I can't, you know, for me, the music wasn't quite rewarding enough to be there the whole night and not being part of a drama, you know? <laughs> and so I'd said that it was over. And, uh, and then I got to do it with Renee in the fall at the Met, and uh, I reversed myself because, you know, because we played, a, we played, we played the action. We, I mean, like, the thing about Traviata is in the, you have to believe that Alfredo and Violetta are in love from that first second in the first act because everything else that comes behind it is 
wholly unbelievable if you don't think they're actually in love, you know? And so, now translating this to what we're talking about here, you know, if, if, if we don't believe that Osmin must have blunder, you know, if you he, if he don't believe that he's really in love with her, her rejection of him wouldn't be nearly so funny, you know, I mean, uh, and her, and her, she's lighthearted with him in, in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, she, she's firm, but I mean, you know, it's, I don't know, you know, you just have to believe that each of these people are really singing, the, uh, they really believe what they're saying, and that's what makes it funny, you know, if they're, like I said, slapstick is slapstick, and that is funny to watch, but Believing in the characters will lead to a greater, um, a greater reward in the end. Yes, it's interesting, this thing, of the, the whole Blanche and Osmond relationship. I mean, she's constantly screaming at him and <laughs> bitching at him. And, and, <laughs> and, he loves every and, minute of it. And, yeah, and he's, he's so used to bossing everybody around. He actually loves it. Yeah. There's one line where she's, she's yelling at him about something, and he says a sort of aside and say, but sie ist toll. She's, she's crazy. Oh, she's great. Chaz, <laughs> <laughs> um, this production uses the world of the theater itself, but then sort of pulls away from that as it proceeds. Can you explain how that works, or do you want that to be a surprise? No, I, I, I try to explain a little bit this, the setup so that there's still an element of surprise. I, one of the ways that when we began to think about making the physical production, um, the way in was through this idea of the, of the world of the Pasha, this oddity of the non-singing character in a group of singing characters, um, and, and to find a way to, to describe his world and what happens to his world, his physical world and also his emotional world over the course of three acts, and also to find this uh, production that would explain how you go from a, a silly comedy, an adventure story, through to a profound emotional uh, gravitas. Um, and so we fa- tried to find a way that we could kill two birds with one stone um, and began in the world of the 18th century theater. So when the curtain goes out um, at the at the Artist Cranic Theater, there's another theater on stage that you'll see, which is, I think, quite beautiful evocation of an 18th century, tiny 18th century opera house with 18th century scenery and 18th century people in it, um, all playing a, a very beautiful, uh, colorful uh, comedy with sort of bittersweet elements. And then in the second act, the artifice of that world the, uh, the, and the, the silliness of it begins to fade away. And so, like the story itself, the scenery itself begins to fade away. And so only a piece of that theater remains in the second act. And as the story progresses and the, the emotional world takes over a, a, in a weightier way, in the third act, even less remains. And I think it's quite a beautiful, uh, I hope a beautiful surprise, how, um, and, and I, I think it's a tribute to the characters themselves, that the third act really isn't about scenery, and it's not about machines, um, and it's, it's about a, a group of people. It's all played as one simple extended scene, the third act, um, and it's about these characters, and they, they are the only thing, really, in act three, in a, I find a very beautiful way. I hope you will, too. But I don't want to give it completely away. Uh, we have a few questions from the audience. Um... Is there actually any real Turkish music in the opera? 
Well, not being an expert on Turkish music, particularly Turkish music in the 18th century, I couldn't tell you. But no, I mean, it's the, the exoticism of, of, of that world. I mean, there were, there were kind of, um, you know, the, the Ottoman Empire impinged a lot on, I mean, you know, Vienna was just up the road. And so, uh, you know, there were itinerant musicians who were around. And, and I think, obviously, the percussive element, the cymbals, uh, and actually... Uh, the, sim- the pair of symbols that we're using in the pit for this production were made in not Istanbul but Constantinople. Oh. In the <laughs> so um, you know we were authentic there. Um, and I, th- I think it was a sort of a fashionable world at the time. The way you know I suppose things Japanese became very fashionable in the 19th century. Hence you know the Mikado and, and many other things, all kinds of wonderful French music and, and painting. Um, no, so the, um, it's, it's a local colour, really. Here's one to put you on the spot, um, Chaz and Sir Andrew. Do you think Mozart's operas require any particular closeness or rapport between conductor and stage director to be brought off successfully? Well, I, well, I don't know about you, but I, the, certainly it will be very difficult to, to produce a, a great collaboration if you had very different and opposing views of a piece, I think. Yeah, and, I think that and, would be a bad idea. Um, <laughs> bad idea. <laughs> and it has happened to me, I, I should say. No names, no pack drill, as they say. Yeah. But um, um, So, it's, uh, we know, we... I think we were on the same page I think we were very much on the same yeah. page from the beginning, and I very much liked this. <laughs> that, oh, no, it's, it's just made, the whole experience then becomes a, a, a much better one. In, in the in the working process, and then that makes a better show. So it, it, there's a trickle down to to the, the that the quality of the collaboration. And, yeah, and, and collaboration is always very important. And this kind of thing where you know Chaz would ask me something. Um, I mean, the very specific tiny thing. He asked me at one point if I could start a little earlier in one place, and I said, of course. I mean, you know, because it was a good thing to do. And and so you know the. the, the the, the idea that a, a conductor and a director are somehow compartmentalized is, uh, you know, if, if, if it's that way, it's not going to work very well. No. So, uh, and, it, it, and, and really, the, the work in preparing a production, you, you prepare for a long, long time before the rehearsals even begin, and then there's that concentrated period where we're really together in the same room in, in the, the rehearsal period, which is sort of the wonderful gravy at the end. Um, and, and one hopes that the Collaboration sort of continues in that world as well, because I think it—that's where the leadership, though, is a hard word, but it, it has an effect on how everybody feels that they can they can contribute in the room. For me, I, the, a dictatorial way of working isn't so interesting. For me, it's about collaboration on every level. So the, to have a conversation with singers and designers and the conductor and all. That ongoing conversation in the process of making the the piece is that's the delight of it. Yeah. Um, Matthew, are there any new roles coming up that you are at liberty to announce? Uh, <laughs> well, sure. I'm about to sing Faust and Damnation of Faust in St. Louis as soon as I'm done here. Actually, it's just two weeks after. So that's new for me. And Idomeneo, I get uh, I get later this year, but it's in uh, it's in Italy, so it'll be a long journey. But <laughs> and in December and January, so maybe not the best time of year to be there. 
but uh, at least those couple things. There's other things, too, on the horizon, but far enough out that I'm not allowed to talk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do any of you ever feel any uneasiness about this opera's orientalizing stereotypes, and how do you confront that? No. (laughs) No. Okay. I might as well say no to (laughs) Um. That really sort of covers it. Um, I actually had a question for Matthew um, because his role has one particularly extraordinary distinction about it, which is that I, if you're looking at the, the mature operas of Mozart, I don't think any other major character gets four arias, and which is so remarkable. And... We've talked about his, the fancier of the four Ich Gans, but can you say briefly you know, what makes these arias separate from each other and how they reveal something of this character? Well, it's interesting, actually, because all four arias are specifically, really, frankly, about love. But, and you were talking about character development earlier, and, you know, it's funny, I, I was thinking about my response and then I started thinking about the text of each aria, and, and a couple things occurred to me. One was the opening aria, he's, he's been away from her for however long it's been, a few weeks, a few months, however long you want to say. But he has finally arrived at the place where he believes she is. And, um, and it, has its, it has its own sort of, it has a, a character of, of um, you know, of, of hopefulness and... Um, you know, of, uh, I don't know, you know, like, it has a sort of a feeling of, here I am, you know. And the second aria, he's just been told that, uh, that Constanza's with the Pasha and that the Pasha's really into her. But she's been true, don't worry, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, and, 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 you know, and he has, he, he, he flutters between his, his absolute craziness of being in love with her to being worried, a that she, I hope I, you know, she, Padrillo said she was true, but, you know, I mean, uh, but you know, like, you know, he flutters in be- uh, between this uncertainty and um, Mo- the way Mozart wrote it too. I mean, um, it, it, I mean, it's it 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 jives perfectly with what he, you know, this is Mozart's great strength anyway. Most, you know, it's just being able to tap into musically what the person might actually be feeling. So, um, and there's a sort of single-mindedness and obsessiveness in that aria too, isn't there? In a way. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, you mean strict because of his because of his worry or because of his? What do you mean? Like, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure why, but yes, I think because because of his worry. But yeah. there's this repetitiousness about it. That yeah. If I say it enough times, yeah. it'll it's be true. Be okay. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just like life. Yeah. <laughs> So, and then in the third aria, uh, you know, uh, he, he, he is aware that Constanza's right, she's nearby, I'm going to bring her to you, you know, and, then, and there's this hopefulness of, I'm finally going to see her again. Like, I've been, I, I've been worried that I was going to see her, but I think everything's going to be okay, but now I'm finally going to see her. And you know what? All this pain of being apart, all these things that we've been feeling, you know, like, it's, it's, this, this pain, it's all worth it, you know, and, and all that stuff makes love more sweet, for when we're actually together again. So, you know, it's funny. I, I was the, he, he does grow, and, and he grew in the way that I suggested that he grew. But I, it was, it's, you know, it's easy. When I started going back and thinking about it, I, you know, I hit the, I hit the, I think I answered the question correctly, but, like, I, I feel like, well, you now know, you it's, know why. It's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know why, exactly. It's, it's, I kind it, of. It's a difficult, um, 
And Chaz, I'm curious as to your response here too. Is it difficult to play that moment where they have this ecstatic reunion at the beginning of the quartet and within a few minutes, Belmonte and Pedrillo are accusing <clears throat> their women, are, uh, they're revealing their suspicion and they could easily have just kept their mouth shut and they all could have been ecstatic and they feel this compulsion to say... I can't help it, but I just have to ask you. Typical man. Well, really. well yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what's so abnormal about that? <laughs> makes perfect sense. Uh, I think part, part of it has to do with the fact that it, that, that it seems sort of frivolous, but it's not. That, that it's led by Belmonte. Belmonte is the first to express his doubt. And he has a right to. Only moments before, if you think about the, the sort of unity of these things, it's one day's worth of of time that we're talking about. It, only earlier on has he heard that she's alive and she is the companion of this Pasha, who in fact is not an 85-year-old uh, you know, faded German actor, but is in fact quite a viable, young, attractive Fated man. Fail, fail, fail. And he meets this guy. He's seen him. It's not, he's, oh, that guy's no competition. That guy is possible competition. And mm. Pedrillo, the, somehow the way he says, oh, she's, don't worry, she's faithful, it has that little, yeah. <laughs> little bit of doubt how we know that Pedrillo, the servant, is really in charge. Um, and, and so it's okay that he would have this doubt, and at this great moment, I think you're at a, he's in an emotional fever pitch, there they are, there's this great reunion, and when you're on riding that emotional high, that's when doubt takes on a greater... Wait. So he does express it, and it comes out of a kind of nobility. This is a guy who believes that if for this relationship to work, she has to be pure. Mm. He's pure in his way, and she must be pure. And so that kind of weighs a little bit on him. And it's only after Belmonte expresses his concern that Pedrillo, who's perfectly happy up to that point, kind of listens in and thinks, oh, yeah, well, maybe, maybe Blonda's not so faithful either. Of course, you can look at Blonda and Osmin and figure it out for yourself. But it seems like the noble thing to do, to be concerned about the faithfulness of your affianced. So, like his master, he responds in kind, okay, so I'll, I'll doubt my fiancé too, and I'll be just as noble. Well, of course, he's just as big an idiot is really what is happening. But um, all, all, is re- all is resolved just in time for something to go horribly wrong. And this is a brilliant example of, of what Mozart could do in this kind of ensemble because there's this marvellous moment when there's this rather gentle allegretto going on um, uh, in, in 4-4 against which Blanchon is doing this wonderful scolding music in 12-8 so she's tripping along in triplets while everything else is going on in a much more fluid way and it, it gives us texture that has Great beauty and, and wit and sparkle all at the same time. Mm. And in fact, the quartet is, is like a microcosm of the later great Mozart finales, you know, and the way it goes from, from one thing to another. And has an, uh, one of the most beautiful moments in the whole opera is this tiny little andantino, which is in 6-8 and has some harmonic moments that, that remind you... Always, actually, they remind me a little bit of, of the end of Figaro when the when the Count and the Countess are saying, perdono, perdono. Oh, sure. Uh, and it's, so it, there are moments of supreme greatness in this music that are, uh, you know, on the level of, the, of, of his very greatest work. Uh, 
and and the whole journey through the piece is is so full of inventiveness. I think that's the great thing about the music. Whether it's whether it's these wonderful, moving, intimate, passionate arias, or, or the or the charming buffo uh, minor characters, uh, lesser characters interchange. It's it's all achieved with with this fecundity of uh, of invention you know that that only is sorry i'm i'm really coming out with them tonight <laughs> <laughs> what do you have in your glass over there <laughs> um, we... fecundity of invention <laughs> um, you know but you have this you know scene of the, the pictures of mozart playing billiards and sort of working things out in the music out in his head mm. and and i think it's it's well it the fact that it just pours out in the in this apparently effortless way, and yet it's so superbly crafted, is what is the miracle of the composer, I think. We have come to the end of our session. This has been extraordinarily stimulating. I've learned so much about abduction. I know you have, too, all of you here tonight. So thank you very much, Andrew Chaz and Matthew. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org. Mm-hmm.